starting our new series today called Light of the World, and and a lot of the music you're going to hear over the next uh, 18 days, 14 days, I guess it is, when we talk about all of these um, services that we're going to have, is this idea of the light of the world. And um, I, I just need to start this whole series off asking you, how many of you, how many of you start singing Christmas music before Thanksgiving? All right. I'm sorry to say nothing against you, but there is something against you. Um, How many of you love this time of year? Let me ask you that. How many just love this time of year? You got good memories. All right. Now, how many of you also dread this time of year because blank will be at the family gathering? Fill in the blank. All right. A few of us. Really? That's it? Are y'all lying? Okay. Well, I'm just checking because... In, in my family, I can't tell you how many times. Now, I went to Baylor. Baylor was 400 miles from my hometown, Borger, Texas. Palestine's 500 miles from my hometown, Borger, Texas. And, and before I was even married, when I was in college, I used to start praying from the moment I left Waco to drive north on, on, and get on to 287 and head towards Borger, Texas. Because I don't know how my parents did it. My parents managed to have four type A personality children. And that's just a powder keg. You get us in the room, there's going to be a fight. Somebody's going to be upset. Somebody's going to say something. Somebody's going to take it wrong. There's going to be a fight. So I used to pray for peace, for grace, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I used to pray for these things. God, help me to taste my words because my brothers are going to do something or say something. And somebody, somebody's going to get mad and somebody's going to start fighting. Um, one time my brother-in-law used to have a steakhouse, um, restaurant and there was one, and he was very generous and he was very kind. And so there was one Christmas Eve. So we're all coming home and this was back when we all used to to come home before I was married. Um, and he decided to let his employees go early on Christmas Eve. What he didn't do though, was he didn't walk into the kitchen to see if they had done anything in the kitchen. He made the mistake of allowing my sister to walk in the kitchen and oh dear God, I mean, the fireworks went off. She, Christmas was ruined because because I don't know if you know this, but the biblically correct way to celebrate Christmas is to open presents on Christmas Eve, right? I'm, I'm, it's not in there. I'm just kidding. When I got married, Janie's family, we used to go around, you would tell, you know, you'd, you'd hand out gifts and everybody would watch one person. And the first time I went to Janie's Christmas, it's on Christmas morning, which was all, you know, that's not in scripture. And then everybody, you pile them up and then everybody just throws stuff everywhere and you can't even see what everybody's, anyway. I got over that eventually, 25 years. So on this one night, um, my sister's losing it because we're supposed to be at mom and dad's house by 6 p.m. We have dinner, we open presents, and then, you know, the next morning, anyway. So sis is just losing it, and I don't know why. This has never happened ever in the history of Washburns, but um, all of the brothers hear about it. We all show up at the restaurant, and we just did the work with a great attitude. I don't know where this came from. It was a Christmas miracle of all Christmas miracles. And so we, we got everything done. We're able to get to mom and dad's house by 6 p.m. And Christmas was saved one time out of however many I went. Um, Because there were a lot of Christmases when somebody got ticked. I mean, there was just stuff happening. It it got so bad that people quit coming, right? Anybody, can anybody relate to a complicated Christmas when, when people get together? Uh, I heard some advice this week that's probably the best. I wish I had known this years ago. So this is, this is free for you. Um, the, the situation was a, a family, the, the mom and dad got a divorce after 40 years. 
And the family weren't, they, they didn't think about what was going to happen the first time they had a holiday after the divorce of mom and dad. And so as the, as the, the holiday approaches, they're going, Oh no, what do we do? One of them's going to be alone. Should we do this? Should we do this? Should we do this? So he calls his friend and he says to his friend, he says, what do I do? And he said, probably the wisest thing that I've ever heard. And this is, this is free. He said, don't try to solve a 40 year old problem in one night. Now that may have been worth it. That may have been, you know, the whole thing you need to hear today, but you don't get to leave yet. We're going to talk about a little bit more. Um, the first Christmas wasn't perfect. So I'm, I'm predicting your Christmas this year won't be perfect. Um, the first Christmas uh, reminds us, you know, of some things. First of all, let me tell you the tension that we have at Christmas. All right, here's the tension. Then we'll get into this other stuff. The tension is Christmas exaggerates the bad right? While also pointing to the good. So if, if bad things happen around Christmas, it's exaggerated because of the holiday. Um, Christmas is the most wonderful time of year because it reminds us of a time when God invaded earth. We just sang God with us. That's what it means. Um, but it also reminds us of why he had to invade the earth because we're sinful people. And what do sinful people do? They sin against other people. What do hurt people do? They hurt other people. What do angry people do? They lash out in anger at other people. What do insecure financially stressed, um, bitter people do they hurt other people. And that's the people that we hang around with at Christmas time. And so here's what I want you to understand. As we start this series, Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, not because of what's happening around us. Pay attention. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. I believe it is, but it's not because of what's happening. Because when we get with, with um, sin-filled people, sinful people, and we're all sinful people, they remind us of some things. One thing they remind us of is there are problems we can't solve. All right? There are people we can't control, and there are ex- expectations that we can't meet. So as you're heading towards this year and blank is going to be there, I want you to remember that you can't solve a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old problem in one night or even in one holiday. What I'm going to suggest is you start paying attention to who Jesus is. When you pay attention to who Jesus is, you begin to realize that I'm, a, I'm my own worst problem. I'm the, I'm the person that I cannot control. I have my own expectations. I can't even meet my own expectations, let alone expect you to meet my expectations, right? When you do that, then God's going to change your perspective about this Christmas. So Christmas is not the most wonderful time because of what's happening. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year because of what happened past tense. God invaded the earth because we're sinful people and sinful people sin against other people. Now, when Jesus was born, he actually split history in two. You got BC, you got AD. BC is before Christ. AD is Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. And, and I was doing some reading. I actually was reading some this morning about the whole BCE and CE. Y'all know what that is? Before common era and the common era. Now, there are actually scientists who will not allow their papers or any of their stuff to be published in scientific magazines if you use B.C. and A.D. They say, we want nothing to do with Jesus, so you have to say before the common era or the common era. Now, the really dumb thing to me is it's dated the same way. So even if you say common era, common era as, as dated from when? The birth of Jesus. 
I mean, come on, Dory. So anyway, let me get off that high horse. Every time you write down the date, it's 2016 or about to be 2017 years from when Jesus invaded the planet. Jesus was the center of history. God sent him as the center of history, but not just as the center of history. He wants to be the center of your life. And that's what I want you to get this Christmas. Because when he's the center of your life, it will change all of your relationships. It will change the way you look at finances. It will change the way you do your job. It will change everything if Jesus is the center of your life. Christmas is also the most wonderful time of the year because it reminds us that not only is God for us, God is with us. I double dog dare you to find another religion where the founder of that religion gave up the glory and majesty of heaven to be born in a manger. It's not, it's not out there. He is with us. The more complicated your life is this year, the more darkness there is in the world, the more you need to be reminded this Christmas that God is with us. Now, in the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call the Gospels, and that just means good news. These contain the events of Jesus' life. Now, where we get the Christmas story, the birth story of Jesus, is from Matthew and from Luke. In Matthew, that's when um, the angel appears to Joseph in a dream, and he says, go marry her. (laughs) The kid said, Mary, it's not lying. That's not what the angel said, but the angel said, she is with child. It is of the Holy spirit. And he said, go ahead and marry her in Luke is where we get the the traditional Christmas story that we usually read Luke chapter two. Well, we find out about Mary, uh, the angel appearing to her. We find out about Elizabeth, her cousin who also, um, was going to have a baby. And that was a miraculous thing that became John the Baptist. But we also read that, um, while Quirinius was governor that Caesar Augustus ordered um, uh, a census and everyone was to return to his hometown. The cool thing about scripture is there's so many details. We can go back and we can double check it in history. This really happened. Now, um, in, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, they all talk about the events of Jesus life. John is different though. John was writing for both Jews and Gentiles and John wasn't worried as much with the events as the meaning of those events. Um, when he wrote his gospel, he was very old. Some people believe he may have been 98 years old or he lived at least until the, the year 98. So somewhere in that time um, is when they think he died. We don't know for sure, but we do know he was probably the oldest of the uh, disciples. And this is the oldest of the, the gospels was his gospel. Now he was one of the originals and his brother was John, uh, James. And so you always hear in scripture, Jesus was hanging out with Peter, James, and John, or Jesus went up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, or did these things. And so James and John, James was the older and John was the younger and Jesus called them the sons of thunder. Now, if you've ever been around a little boy that just gets into everything, you understand this idea of the sons of thunder. These guys were the ones that when they went through Samaria one time and the village rejected them because they were headed toward Jerusalem, they said, should we call down fire from heaven to destroy these? And Jesus just looks at them, you know, like what? Um, these are the guys who had their mommy go talk to Jesus and ask if James and John could sit on each side of Jesus in heaven. I mean, come on, dudes. But, but John, something happened to John because by the end of his life, he is a totally different man. I don't think he was called the son of thunder at the end of his life. He, he actually referred to himself in the book of John as the disciple Jesus loved. Um, there's, there's all kinds of, of things that happen. And, and the only, John is the only one that recorded the story of Jesus washing the disciples feet. 
I think that had a major impact on this son of thunder in changing him into the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he was known for his grace and he was known for all of these, these wonderful things. Now, John is the one who, who reduced God to one word. He said, God is love. He said that in, in first John, he wrote five books in the new Testament, by the way. Now, I don't want you to skip over this because, because what What John has gone through gives that word power that God is love. John has experienced more loss than I'm willing to bet everyone in this room combined. John lived longer than the other disciples. All the others were were martyred um, at, at a fairly young age. John was alive whenever Nero was the, the, the Caesar and Nero did not like Jews simply because they were Jews. He would round them up, roundly slaughter them, torture them. He would take some of them to places and they would tie them up between animals. They would go into these arenas and they would cheer as the animals ripped Christians limb, uh, Jews limb from limb. Nero was the guy who, who, because see, they, they believed that Caesar was a God. It's a lowercase G. It's not capital G like we talk about. And they would say, Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't say Caesar is Lord, you could die for that. So they would ask Jews, is Caesar Lord? And if they didn't say Caesar is Lord, they'd say, no, God is the Lord. There's one God. That was the, the Shema. There is one God. And so they would be torn limb from limb. So he's, he's seen a lot of this stuff. John was alive whenever the, the army of Rome was sent to surround Jerusalem because there was a rebellion uh, in 66 AD. And so they go and, and they surround Jerusalem for seven months. During that seven months, um, hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed or they got the plague and died. If they survived, they were sold into the slave mines in Africa. And so John was alive when all of this stuff happened. He's lost loved ones. He's lost friends. He's lost countrymen. John was also the one that was exiled to Patmos. In, in the, what, what some folks believe is that he lived in a cave completely cut off from any other human interaction. Man, they thought they were doing him wrong and, and God gives him the, the book of Revelation. He has that vision of heaven when he's on the island of Patmos. John, by the time he writes his book, Peter and Paul, his friends, have been executed simply for following Jesus Christ. Has this guy gone through a lot? So when this guy says God is love, his words have power. Through all the pain, loss, and heartache, John never lost faith. And I believe that not only was it because he walked with Jesus for three years, he also saw Jesus resurrected. And when you see a guy you know is dead come back to life, a dead man walking will change you. Now, at the end of his gospel, he tells us why he wrote the gospel. Because there are already three, and he knew there were already three. Why did he do it? John 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He said, I'm just giving you a taste. There are 35 miracles of Jesus in the first four books of the New Testament. John chose seven of them. He called them signs, not miracles, because his purpose, he's going to tell you, is in the next verse. These are written, these seven are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. There's his purpose. The the signs point to this guy is the son of God. Now, when you're going to Dallas, I don't know any of you. I hope I never see this. I don't know any of you that get to the first sign that says Dallas this way that you go, Woo, we've arrived. Pull over, have a picnic. Yeah, we made it to, to, to Dallas. No, you made it to a sign pointing the way. The sign, the miracle was not even the big deal. The miracle pointed to the fact that Jesus was a big deal. You with me? So he says that 
These were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He's not talking about physical life because everybody who was reading this already had physical life. He's talking about another life, spiritual. John believed that Jesus was the source of a life, a type of life that went beyond the physical. And here's something that's interesting to me too. John didn't start his book with the story of Jesus' birth. Think about this. When Jesus was on the cross, he looks down at John and Mary, his mom that are there. And he looks at Mary and he says, behold, this is now your son pointing at John. Well, I guess he nodded. He couldn't point. And he said, mother, behold your son. And and John tells us in his book that he took Mary into his house and he cared for her. And it's reasonable to believe that he cared for her the rest of her life. Now, if your parents have ever told a story repeatedly, that you begin to roll your eyes, oh no, here we go again. You know that the mother of Jesus, who the Bible says treasured all these things in her heart, you know she told this story over and over and over. People, all the churches, Mary comes to me, Mary's speaking tonight, Mary's giving her testimony tonight. You know John has heard this story over and over, but he doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. That's really interesting to me. He starts with the meaning of Jesus' life. And, and so I want you to understand just how dark the time was when Jesus was born. And, and in Galatians, Paul tells us this about the timing. God's a God of timing. But when the right time came, God didn't mess up. He didn't just kind of, you know, oh, let's do it on this date. No, he had the right time in mind. It was a very dark time. I would, I would venture to say it's even darker than this time. We have this, I don't know about you, but we have a lot of people I talk to. We have this idea that we live in, in the worst time in history. It's bad. Don't get me wrong. It's bad. But I don't know of any Christians in the United States being lit on fire to light a garden party. Because you're a follower of Christ. At just the right time, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. So here's what I want you to realize about your time that you're here this Christmas. Whenever you find out who's coming this Christmas and who's not coming, whenever you find out what you're going to get and what you're never going to get, I want you to remember the words of John about the birth of Jesus. Now, if you know anything about his book, he starts off in in John 1, 1. He said, the word in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Word means Jesus says that all of creation was made through the word. And then he gets to verse four. And here's what I want you to pay attention to. He's talking about Jesus said in him, Jesus was life, not physical life. Everybody had that spiritual life. And he uses this word life 36 times in the book in him. And Jesus was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. At the end of his life, with all the horrible things he's seen, he says, Jesus is life. He said, God is love. Jesus is life. And then he also says that Jesus is the light of the world. See, I hear a lot of people, especially this time of year, I hear people complaining about their lives. If you're complaining about your life, it means that your focus is on you. You are the center of your universe. And no offense, well, actually all offense you want to take. If you are the center of your universe, you live in a really small space. If you have anybody other than Jesus as the center of your universe, you're you're thinking way too small. God created you with a purpose in mind. And you will never feel fulfillment, joy, a sense of, of accomplishment until you start living with the one who was created for you to worship. He created a spot for you to worship, is what I'm trying to say. 
Until you worship him, you're going to be frustrated with your life. And see, people assume that the Messiah, everybody that, that read all of these books, they assumed that the Messiah was going to restore Jews, the, the, the nation of Israel, to power, to prominent power like they were in the Old Testament. We're going to be a world power again. Woo, yeah. That's not why Jesus came. In fact, when he rose from the dead and he's hanging out with his disciples, they said, Jesus, is this the time you're going to restore the nation of Israel? And Jesus says, that's none of your business. And then he says, go into all the nations, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus' light was no light. It was not a national Jewish light. Jesus is the light of the world. Now, look at verse 5. Jesus is the light. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In the Bible, light is used as an emblem of God. And in fact, in Revelation, when it says that that there'll be a new Jerusalem and all the followers of Jesus will be a part of that, it says there will be no need of sun, moon, or stars because God himself will be our light. Bible is always talking about light, it's talking about God. So God invaded the darkness. Darkness is used to refer to death, to ignorance, to sin, and separation from God. And in these two verses, John summarizes his whole gospel, his old good news of Jesus. He says, light came into darkness. Darkness is Satan and all of his followers. They're resisting it, but they can't resist it. They will never overcome it. And, and see, here's the crazy thing. We as Christians very often fight battles with no power, with no light, with no connection to who God is. Our, our battle, our, our war has already been won. There are some battles that we're still fighting, but we fight from victory because we know the last page that we win if we're on Christ's side. Now, people will either love darkness or they'll love light and their actions will be reflected in which one they love. If they love light, they'll act like Jesus. If they love darkness, they'll act like Satan. John says, it doesn't matter how dark the world is. The light will never be overcome. And in fact, it says in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says that, that the God of this age, Satan, will blind the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. There is, there is a darkness that wants to destroy people. And the only answer is to point them to the light. Darkness is an absence of light. So anywhere you see darkness, it means light does not exist there. John says the darkness has not, will not, cannot overcome the light. And we said he's probably the last apostle alive. So he's seen a lot of darkness. He's seen evil desperately trying to overcome light. And I want to ask you, do you know how hard evil darkness has tried to overcome light? I mean, you got Caesar. I've told you about Caesar Augustus. He tried, Herod tried to, when Jesus was born and he found out there was going to be a king of the Jews, Herod gets upset and kills all the baby boys in Bethlehem. He tried to put out the light, couldn't do it. Jesus had to go to Egypt at one point, but God brought him back. That couldn't put out the light. Tiberius, he was a horrible um, Caesar. Nero, Nero was Hitler basically, but 1600 years before there was a Hitler. However many, I don't even know, 1900 years before there was a Hitler. Nero was the bad guy. He tried to put out the light. He couldn't do it. But you know, even in the last 100 years, we've had Hitler. We've had Muhammad. We've had um, uh, Joseph Smith. We've had Mary Baker Eddy. We've had Charles Taz Russell. All of these people trying to put out the light. And John says they can't. No matter how dark, no matter how much hurt, no matter how much injustice, no matter how many governments rise or fall, the darkness cannot, it will not overcome the light of Jesus Christ. 
this Christmas, instead of looking at what's happening, I want to challenge you to look at what happened. And base your attitude on what happened. And that's that light entered the world. Christmas is about a light shining that cannot be put out. Nothing anyone can do to you or say to you or do to someone you love can change that fact. The Bible tells us that God opposes the, but he gives grace to the humble. If you want to be humble when you're approaching Christmas this year, I want you to remember that, that you are a person that someone else cannot control. I want you to realize that you are a problem someone else can't solve. I want you to realize that not only um, do you have expectations others meet, you're not meeting someone else's expectations and you don't have to. That's not the purpose of your life. I want you to remember that, that we need a savior. Sinful people need a savior. And we're celebrating the fact that in him, our savior was life. And this life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Not then, not, not ever. Did you bow your heads? How many of you tend to forget that the power of Jesus will never be overcome. Did you raise your hands? Need to be reminded, right? Need to be reminded more than once a year. <laughs> but Christmas comes and reminds us about lights that shine in the darkness. It's my prayer that our, our church would be a light. The Bible says that a city set on a hill People can see we're, we're set on this hill right outside of Palestine to be a light, to make a difference in people's lives. The only way we can do that is, is if we quit being the center of our own universe and focus on the light. Father, would you change us into people who, who don't just talk about loving you? We live it in such a way that other people see our good works and they glorify you in heaven. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.